My name is Brie Castellini. I used to be a spy. My name is Chris Cherry. I used to be innocent. And this is Burn Notice, Ruiner of Innocence, and a weekly rewatch of the USA television masterpiece Burn Notice about Michael Weston, a spy. Throughout this podcast, we'll be rating each episode on whether it is an episode of television, a great episode of television, or a great episode of Burn Notice. Or will cause you to lose your innocence. And if you want to know what complicated calculations go into these ratings, listen to our intro episode or wait until the end where, oh, don't you worry, sweetheart, we will explain them again. Also, what complicated calculations any... go into your innocence? Um, it's, it, there's, it's actually not that complicated. It's have I watched bad breaks in the past 48 hours? If so, no innocence to be found. It's not at all a sexual episode. Uh, then you're watching it wrong. Um, but before we get into that, if you or anyone you know um, knows Jeffrey Donovan, please get in touch. For the love of God, get in touch with us. You can send us questions, suggestions, Jeffrey Donovan uh, introductions, compliments, but importantly, no criticism of any kind to burnnoticedpodcast at gmail.com or to our Twitter at burnnoticedpod. That's burnnoticed with a D. Can I say... Please don't send us criticism, not because we can't take it, but specifically <laughs> because Brie can't take it, and she will badger you on Twitter and send you multiple I... articles about why using the word like is okay. I and, resent the implication in fact, that good. I reacted in any way. <laughs> and I'm just like, like this, you know? You're like, like this. I'm like, like this. It's like crazy. I I apologize to you, listener. (laughs) Well, I don't. So, uh, without further ado, uh, no apologies necessary because this week we're talking about season two, episode 13. Lucky number episode 13. It's called Bad Breaks and it aired February 12th, 2009 and was written by Michael Horowitz and directed by John T. Kretschmer. Both names we've heard before. We've been teasing this episode since like the podcast started. We've been teasing this episode probably since our last podcast. That's probably true. I own this episode. This might be something important for everyone to know. So at some point in the past, don't ask me when, I bought a six-pack of Burn Notice episodes. Hey, Brie. Yeah. When? Like, probably late high school. No, it wouldn't have been late high school because I bought it on iTunes. So I probably in college. When I was in college, I bought a six-pack of Burn Notice episodes and not... Importantly, like a full season of Burn Notice, but they had like a package on like a bundle of episodes on iTunes that was for sale. That was like the like classics. Actually, I'm going to look it up because it's, it's titled something stupid. Like um, we would go to a Walmart and they'd be like, hey, here's two DVDs that have Chevy Chase in them. Kind of like that. Exactly. But for specifically for Burn Notice episodes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's okay. It's, it's the Burn Notice six pack spy tricks of the trade. And so it's episodes, I guess, that the whoever curated this considered to be, like, iconic episodes for Spycraft. But I'm going to read you the episode titles that they consider part of this pack, uh, of which Bad Breaks is a part of. Um, but this is, and it's only from, like, seasons one and two. Um, but 
this is what this curator considers burn notices you know peak spy tricks of the trade episodes the two-part season one finale so loose ends part one and two Okay, uh, AKA the episodes that make no sense uh, narratively or otherwise. Uh, and don't really have a lot of spy stuff. Yeah, really not. Not at all. But they were episodes written by Matt Nix. So, like, I think it, there was a mandate here. Uh, next up, they've got Comrades, which was the one where Michael uh, is Sergey. <laughs> Sergey, the, the human trafficker, which I agree with that one. I think that one we, we really enjoyed as an episode. That's a good episode. I don't know how much spy stuff is in it. Uh, it, it was rated a great episode of Burn Notice. So, so it uh, has enough. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, then Good Soldier. That's the one uh, where Michael has his, like, uh, born-again Christian monologue at the end. Where he, like, Christ. saves that girl from kidnapping. Honestly, I think we consider that a great episode of Burnos, but I also don't think that of all of the episodes, that would be one I would say that had the best spy tips in it. Very funny yeah. episode, not that. Then then they've got Bad Breaks, and then they have an episode called Lesser Evil, which I think is the season two finale. Mm. So. You know, what's interesting about that and kind of gets into something I was thinking about as I was watching Bad Breaks, which is I it made me think again about our rating system and about how many things that we have called a great episode of television. To be fair, but, we have not called that many things great episodes of television. There were two in season one and three so far in season two. But I don't think there's been an episode of television that has been as good as this episode of television. Oh, Chris, I'm so glad you said that. Let's get into it. No, but now it feels feels wrong to lump other episodes (laughs) that have come up before this episode in with this episode. You know what? That's super fair. And I think that it it merits discussion once we get to the end of the episode when we're rating. Um, of course. But I, but, Chris, I'm horned up, slicked down. We got to get into this. Hold on. Edge a bit more. I think this pack kind of really points out how hard it is to be like, what's a great episode of Burn Notice? Because like this episode, before we started this podcast was the only episode I remembered. And for I watched, good reason. <laughs> exactly. And so how great could this show be? <laughs> All right, so go here's, on. Here's one thing that I will say, because uh, you're right, I do need to edge a little bit more, um, is that you and I have both admittedly not seen more than like maybe four seasons of Burn Notice. So I am fully willing to like allow for another episode to usurp the throne as my favorite burn notice episode because it is a little bit of a bummer that my favorite episode is in season two but since we haven't seen you know into the future i am still holding out hope that something will if not beat out bad breaks like get close and i mean we've had episodes that have been Close, like Wanted Man was fun, but no, but you're right, it's not the same. Yeah, like, no, it's not. 
Okay, what at the end of the episode, what we're going to do is I will go through what we've considered great episodes of television prior to this, and we'll we'll put them, you know, through the bad breaks filter and see how we feel in comparison. All right, let's do that. I'm excited. I think I think that's important. Okay, but before we can get into the weeds, which I so desperately want to roll around in, mm-hmm. um, I need to read the IMDb description for the episode, which reads, Michael and former handler Jason Bly are trapped together in a bank robbery. The pair must work together in order to get out alive. That they must. That's exactly what the... See, even from the IMDb description, it's like, this isn't a complicated episode. It's exactly like what you need. It is just, it's so simple, but such like a mm, powerful setup. Oh God, I love this episode. Because it's, it's like a concept. It's an idea. It's a premise that isn't the premise that we do once every week. Mm-mm. No, uh, it's like, God, it's like so pure. It's such a pure episode. It is uncut by bullshit, even though they are technically moving like the season long plot forward. Cause like the whole conceit is that Michael is trying to get details about this bank account that he got from his bomber. But like the episode itself manages to be like so beautifully self-contained. This would also like, if I was going to make somebody who'd never watched Burn Notice watch Burn Notice, I would give them this episode and then I would say, if you want to watch more, go ahead. But I would It's all downhill from here. But <laughs> it's all downhill from here. But this is like a perfect like standalone television episode. Like you it really is. don't need to know any context. You don't need to know what bank account he's trying to get. You don't need to know who Barry is. You don't need to know what the relationships between anyone is. It's just like this perfect like time capsule of television. Agreed. So um <laughs> It's going to be interesting to see how we talk about it, given that, like, just it's just good. And, like, we've had this problem before where, like, our episodes are less funny when we enjoy an episode. Uh, and so I'm curious to see if just my off-the-charts horniness for this episode will get us to, like, good entertainment while also enjoying a thing. So let's see when we get into the weeds. All right. So, I'm already in the weeds. I was in the weeds already. While you were talking, oh, I, I went into the weeds. I've been standing in the weeds for, like, a good 20 seconds. Okay, hang on. Let me get in. Let me take my shoes off. I want to feel it between my toesies. Uh, this is such a fucking weird energy to start this episode with, but here we go. All right, so the cold open is pretty simple. Sam and Michael are heading to meet Barry for the first time in like 10 episodes after like a series of episodes where Barry shouldn't have been there. Finally, Barry is here again and is actually useful for his intended purpose. And Sam is complaining about how like the meeting spot that they're going to meet Barry at is like way fancier than the meeting spots that him and Michael go to just like when it's just the two of them. And um, he tells Michael and then he's like, well, at least this place has really good mojitos. And Michael's like, oh, no, 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 no. We're on a budget. This is just for Barry. And Sam's like, you know what? I think this cancels out one of the times that you've saved my life, which is a very extremely funny and on brand exchange for these two and a delightful start to the episode. A great episode. Again, starting out (laughs) right away with talking about paying for lunch. (laughs) It's like this episode knows burn notice and is like, but I know what it could be. It's like yes. this episode fully understands and appreciates the epitome of what Burn Notice could be. This is like, this is, a, this what this should have been the fucking pilot. Like this is, su- Ugh. okay, I have to, we have to just actually talk about this. So um, the reason that Michael is meeting Barry is because Barry is their like money launderer 
guy who knows shady banks and he's trying to get Barry to get him information on the owner of the account who uh, paid to have Michael bombed. But uh, when they're at lunch, Barry is acting a little bit cagier than usual. And uh, Michael intuits that he's wearing a wire. So He also, uh, at the beginning of the scene, ogles a pretty lady. Which again, cuts against your idea. Yeah, Barry does. Cuts against your idea that he's supposed to be gay-coded. I feel like they kind of pivoted away from it. But I feel like there was a time, especially like in the pilot... Uh, was he in the pilot? I feel like he was in the pilot. I think he was uh, probably he was in the pilot. Kind, he was like low-key gay-coded, and then I think that they pivoted away from it because they didn't know how to handle that. Um, True. And I and and for the most part, when a character is gay-coded in Burn Notice, they're in love with Michael, and I don't think that that was the energy they were looking for from Barry, so they were like, I guess we'll just make him straight. <laughs> and here, here's a lady to prove it. You know that John Mulaney line where he's like, it's like God built like a gay person, but forgot to flip that final switch. That's kind of how I feel about Barry. Know that line, honey. I live that line. <laughs> Don't call me honey, you piece of shit. So Barry's ogling a pretty lady, but he's also wearing a wire. Uh, we later learn also he has a shaved chest, which he quite likes. Um, who's who's listening on the other end? Why? It's Jason Bly, a wry guy from season one, not wearing a tie. That was the joke that um, I spent zero time thinking of because I'm a comedy genius. Jason Bly is back, and he's blackmailing Michael. That's a real BoJack kind of joke. (laughs) I know, and I hate BoJack. Oh, I love BoJack. We were watching BoJack yesterday. Watch BoJack, guys. I watched the entire first season, and I was like, this isn't for me. Uh, But you know what I've watched even more of? Burn Notice. Uh, So Jason Bly is back in town. Uh... Just to remind you, if you have forgotten, which I would not blame you for, because it's been a uh, it's been quite a while since you've seen old, old J.C. Bly. Um, he was kind of a troll handler of Michael's. Like he was the most effective handler that like the government ever sent after Michael because he like actively was like getting in the way of Michael's you know side jobs and his attempts to like figure out what happened to him. And so the way that Michael finally got rid of him was he basically did what was done to him which was create a fake file of like all sorts of incriminating bullshit that would get jason bly like totally destroyed but jason bly uh is back in town because now he's got something on michael aka uh all the shady stuff that barry has been doing in order to track down this like cayman's bank account what's great about this is that even before we get to the masterful high concept premise of this episode this is a good premise like this is smart too it's it's just that it's really compelling tv like that's a good conflict like they're basically having to blackmail each unblackmail each other or like Mm -hmm. and it's a nice way to bring this character back and who was always one of the stronger uh pairings for michael in terms of like day-to-day antagonist yes like they have they have a really fun like antagonistic chemistry that I am very into. End of cold open. 
we come out of cold open with Fiona, who is playing the part of audience stand-in, who demands that Michael just use his blackmail file on Bly, um, as promised the last time that we saw him. But Michael points out to us, the audience, that the mutually assured destruction of it all is a little bit too much for him. And he would rather, like, play along with Bly for a little bit rather than, like, go nuclear. As they are having this conversation, they walk up to the loft, but find that there's all this like biohazard tape out front because our favorite government troll has set upon Michael's loft with agents who are ripping apart all of his furniture and like, you know, tearing apart his fixtures and things like that because Jason Bly has reported that there is toxic mold at Michael's apartment. This is something that he's done before. He like yeah. he likes to fuck with Michael's living situation and just like, oh, sorry, you can't come home. It's bad. Also, it wasn't the first time we met Jason Bly in Madeline's house and he was like acting all like erratic and mean and like breaking shit in his mom's house? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like this definitely feels like of a piece with that and in character for Jason Bly. I also like that they say that Michael's loft apartment is unfit for human habitation because that's a thing we already knew <laughs> uh and i think even jason bly was like he 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 makes some remark like yeah apparently this is uh, unfit for human habitation which is crazy i thought it just sucked <laughs> or something similar to that like jason bly gets some of the best lines and so as he's giving this monologue about how like oh man michael your life's sure gonna suck for a while he's just like smashing beer bottles on the floor of the loft like oh look no mold in that one just like really casually as he's having this like <laughs> monologue uh it's just it's a very fun setup and so michael's like well I'm not going to let you bother me, so I'm just going to go grab some clothes and head out. And Bly's like, oh, no, no, don't worry. I uh, packed you a duffel bag. And it's just a duffel bag of, like, very luridly pink clothing because, you know, emasculating. It's good to get a little bit of homophobia in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, Im- it's important it's that, It's still you know... burn notice. <laughs> we got to remind people who we are. Yeah, the line that he says to Michael at this point, he says, well, for a tough guy, you sure dress like an Easter egg which is the least homophobic way he could have phrased that, but it's still a little homophobic. It's, like, homophobic, but, like, in the Festive. 70s. It's a joke they would have done on an episode of Three's Company. <laughs> yeah, I buy that. So Michael goes to stay with his mom for a little bit, who uh, incidentally has a friend named Paula already waiting, who needs a follow-up consultation with Michael, apparently off-camera last week, Uh, Michael advised this Paula woman about a guy she met on the internet who was like starting to creep her out. Um, He, uh, he told her to like stop answering her emails and like avoid his calls. But unfortunately the guy didn't give up there. So the guy in question's name is Prescott, which should have been the first red flag. Honestly, terrible fucking first name. I also, I had forgotten that this episode even had, a victim. <laughs> like, and I don't think it needs it. No, it doesn't. I think it was just a way to, like, get Madeline into the episode. It's the one concession to, like, Matt Nix and the structure of Burn Notice, that there has to be some sort of victim. Mm-hmm. Well, um, there has to be, like, an inciting victim. Because there's always victims, but, like, there has to yeah. be one person who, like, hires him for the job. Exactly. For, like, have a second watching this episode, having not seen it in a long time, I thought maybe, like, it was going to involve Michael just getting some stuff for Jason Bly or something like that. 
But then I was like, oh, yeah, no, that's right. There's a victim because there's always a victim. There's always a victim. But this is like the most artfully woven, you know, spy life, real life kind of plot that they've had. Yes. Literally ever. So anyway, so Paula and Prescott uh, were a match made in hell. And Prescott, despite... Paula, like, not answering his emails or calling him back has been, like, continuing to pester her and, like, ask her all sorts of personal questions, called her at her office, and she's like, I think he's a stalker. Can you please help me? And Michael's like, well, I've got nothing else going on. So, yeah, I guess I'll go I'll go talk to this dude for you. And a wonderful bit of 2009-ness, she has printed out his internet profile <laughs> and given it's it so to good. him. Yeah, his, his whole, like, internet profile with, like, and she, I guess, knows, like, uh, or has been told, like, where he lives roughly, but not his address. So um, Michael and Sam go, like, to the neighborhood that I guess he's from and start asking around, but uh, aren't really having having any luck. So Michael and Sam just, like, go on a field trip together, like, let's find this guy and tell him to stop being a creep. But they don't find him. And as Sam's like, I'll go check on his IP address, but first I have to go on a date. Which with they a should have done heiress. in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I don't exactly. know why looking up his IP address wasn't the first thing that they did, but okay. But sorry, you were saying. Chris, are you saying that it's likely that someone on the internet is lying? That's crazy. It's on the internet. It's 2009. Maybe it's 2009. No one knows what's happening. The The boys are about to split up. Sam to go uh, have a date with a woman who's like a millionaire beer brewer. So like literally the perfect woman for Sam. And, you know, it's all jokes and jabs. But then Paula calls Michael. Prescott is outside of her work. She needs Michael to come right away. I like how Sam is a sugar baby. But he looks like a sugar daddy. So Michael heads off to the bank to like, you know, go talk to this guy once and for all. Sam goes on his date. So at the private bank where Paula works, she's telling Michael about how Prescott has been uh, essentially casing the joint all morning. And she still thinks that he is stalking her because he's been like driving by and like looking in the windows and all this sort of stuff. And Michael is starting to kind of put some pieces together like, oh, I think something else might be going on. But uh, before he can really say anything, Bly strolls on in, demanding once again his blackmail file before the two spies can get down to business. Prescott gets down to business, walking in with a huge bank robbery crew. This is a stick up. So cell phones are blocked, guns are out, silent alarm is dead, and a security guard is also dead. Mark, and Mark Shepard is here. And Mark Shepard is here. Mark Shepard is one of my favorite character actors, possibly my favorite character actor of all time. Like he, and also something that I love about him is that like he perfectly fits the mood of whatever show he's in. Because like we talked about how uh, when Toby Ziegler uh, was in that like one episode of burn notice it's he seemed kind of out of place like he really didn't seem like he should be there he was not the right style of actor for this mark shepherd absolutely fucking mark shepherd lives here this is where oh. mark shepherd was born oh mark shepherd does live here i do think that mark shepherd did not quite fit the style of battlestar galactica when he was on battlestar galactica that's interesting. You know what's funny is that was the first time I'd ever seen Mark Shepard. So um, that was like my entry point for him. And so it doesn't seem quite as weird. But maybe if I went back to those seasons, uh, I would feel differently since I've seen him in so much since then. But well, Battlestar Galactica, Mark Shepard was my first Mark Shepard. 
I mean, he's very peak Mark Shepard in that show. It's just that that show had always had kind of a more serious, grounded tone. And then Mark Shepard shows up and he's like, cool, <laughs> blind, lo- yeah, cool, <laughs> blind, alcoholic lawyer. Like, he's such an absurd character on that show. <laughs> and, like, he I mean, makes that show the was shows... also a show that, that gave, uh, that, that made what's his face like fat for a season with the worst prosthetics that. I've ever seen. I forgot about that. They did do <laughs> I that. Will... I will never forget about Fat Jamie. Or oh my what, god! Jamie is the actor's name. What is the what is the character's name? Oh my god, Lee Lee Adama. Lee Fat Lee Adama. Fat yeah. I will never. I used to Fat Lee Adama used to be my cell phone lock screen. Like that's how much I fucking loved those awful prosthetics. God, Rob <laughs> uh, Rob McElhenney actually got fat for It's Always Sunny. So what were you doing, Jamie Lee Adama? <laughs> This has been your, you know, Battlestar Galactica moment of this episode. We should rewatch Battlestar Galactica. We should. We don't have to do a podcast about it. Well, then what's the point, Chris? Come on. We're millennials. So Mark Shepard is in the house, and so are all his crime guys. Bly and Michael are herded with the rest of the, like, office workers at this bank into a conference room and disagree about how to handle these new friends. Bly wants to go aggressive and just get out of this situation once and for all, but Michael, in peak Michael form, wants to do nothing. Bly manages to disarm one robber, but is quickly overtaken by how tremendously outnumbered he is. Um, So someone is not as good of a spy as other people. And now Prescott gets to do a little speech. He starts this speech with uh, his, like, this is how it is speech with a truly stone cold line. Welcome to my retirement party. Fuck. I love this episode. Like it's, a very it's good just line. fucking chef's kiss. Cause this episode is diehard a little bit. It is. And diehard is also a great film. Exactly. Oh yeah. No, I'm not saying that it's not. I'm saying that, Mark Shepard has to be Alan Rickman, and that's a hard role to be. And Mark Shepard is killing it at being Alan Rickman. He really is. So at the end of his little speech about like, hey, don't fuck around or I will kill you, he shoots Bly in the arm. And it kind of looks like it's like just a glancing blow, but apparently it's much more serious than that. Um, And so Michael immediately adopts his alias for the week, uh, a doctor with absolutely no emotion in his voice at any point. Um, And after sort of calming everyone down, uh, the hostages are left alone. And Michael starts with like his version of how we're going to get out of this, which is he's going to fight like a spy. And I am fucking soaked down to my toes, says my notes. I do. (laughs) I'm going to ignore that. I do. Like the way that this sets up the dynamic of Jason Bly and Michael, because Jason Bly is great and he's really smart and good at being a spy, but it really does seem like what Jason Bly needs is time to plan. Like it seems like Jason Bly is bad on his feet and on, and on his feet is where Michael lives. No, it's so true. And it's also like, it immediately sets a dynamic of like, Michael as Bly's caretaker. So not only has Bly like failed to get them out of this situation, but now he has to trust Michael for like two different reasons. One to like save his life and arm and two to like save his life and the lives of everyone here. And so that like immediately changes the dynamic of their entire like relationship. And it's, it's so good. It just puts a little bit of hurt comfort in there. Just a taste. Just, 
Just a little treat. Yeah, you can have a little hurt comfort as a treat. Uh, Michael instructs all of the hostages that he's in the room with to covertly start tunneling through the drywall into the next office over and then leaves the conference room very confidently, despite being like held at gunpoint because he needs medicine. A beefy bad guy follows him around with a gun, suspicious but not quite ready to tattle to Mark Shepard yet. So Michael is going like full bulldozing con man in his like very deep doctor voice where he's being super condescending to the guards, just sort of like rambling as he walks about the office, gathering like a first aid kit and like pills from people's desks and like a bottle of alcohol from someone's drawers and all this sort of stuff. Uh, But he's also gathering other types of materials that he could like maybe improvise into something later on. But because he's like, he's got this sort of ongoing monologue, the guy is like distracted. It's like, the you know, sleight of hand works if you distract people, uh, you know, and have them look over there when you're, you know, grabbing a stapler over here. Uh, it's very fun. It's just like a nice, like very dynamic moving scene as he's like going from cubicle to cubicle. He also picks up a stepped on discarded cell phone from earlier, like earlier in the episode, like one of the office guys tried to call out and like one of the bad guys stepped on his phone and just like, left it Can- on the floor. Really quickly. Why? Because the cell phones are jammed, so why would they need to... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That is a fair point. (laughs) I mean, he's a a crime guy, and crime guys like to destroy property. He's the muscle. He can't think. He's the muscle. Yeah, he's the the beefy one. Yeah. He's He's a beefy beefy. boy. He's He's a beefy boy. He can't think good. He's got, he's got beefy, he's a beefy boy, but a, a meager he's got brain. A, yeah, he's, he's got a beef, he's got beef on the brain. That's what he's got. <laughs> so, uh, anyways. Uh, yeah, so one, one of the items that he collects while he's, like, going through the office is this discarded cell phone. He manages to distract. What if there had just been a line, like, later in the episode where that one guy was like, I tried to call with my super cell phone. <laughs> that's got a plus two against jamming <laughs> but the beefy guy stomped on <laughs> so anyways we're gonna f- the plus two cell phone's about to get used because uh michael has like put um a bowl of water in the microwave to get it boiling um and the microwave goes off and he's like oh can you go get that and like just like walks away as if like of course this beefy guy's gonna go get it and beefy guy's brain's not good so he's like okay so beefy guy goes to get the water and michael uh kind of ducks into the room with the ethernet server so that he can um blow past the cell jammer to place a call so we'll, we'll get to it in the spy voiceover but apparently a cell phone jammer works by being like it kind of is the catch-all for a lot of things, but if you have like a more powerful signal than the cell phone jammer, then it like negates its effect. Apparently, I don't know. I bought it, and so I Michael places Michael places a call out, and we cut to Sam on a date with his beer heiress. She genuinely is perfect for him and seems like really cool. She has six, no, seven beach houses and hates working. She just relaxes all day long, is always on vacation, and has, like, all the beer that a woman could want. Uh, Sam's cell phone starts it's, ringing. She's cartoonishly perfect. She's cartoonishly perfect. But, like, like but she, she plays it really fun. Like, she just no, seems she's great. like. Oh, no, yeah. But, like, it's, it's like the perfect woman for Homer Simpson. <laughs> Who kind of is Sam Axe. 
Yeah. Just like incompetent Sam acts. So um, Sam's phone starts going off, but it's an unknown number, so he ignores it because Sammy wants some hammy, but eventually is sort of irritated into answering. And lo and behold, it is Michael, and he needs some of Fee's special stuff. In this instance, that means C4. Apparently, he knows the dimensions of the bank plus the exact location of the office his hostage minions are tunneling into because that is the exact information that he relays um, for where the sticky white stuff should be placed. So he wants Sam and Fee to You're like trying blow- so hard. Listen, here's the thing, Chris. I didn't have to try hard at all. It just flowed out of me. God. It just flowed right out. Um, it's such a reach. So much of it. It's the first time I didn't have to work at finishing. Just such a reach. Uh, anyways. So, yeah. So, they need he needs Sam and Fee to blow them a an exit. And this is another one of those moments. Like, there's like, okay. I will give you that there are a couple of moments in this episode that's like, that seems unlikely, but okay. Uh, and this is one of them, which is 20 paces to the left, third window from the whatever. Like, Michael has apparently figured out the floor plan of this fucking bank that he's never been to and knows exactly where they should place the charges based on, like, the arbitrary conference room that he and the other hostages are being held in. Again, okay. in a bank that he has never been to. Okay, but you need to understand that he used to be a spy. Oh, you're right. I forgot about that. That is the catch-all for anything that Michael Weston knows at random. And and I will say, he did do a lot of walking around the office just now to gather supplies. That's true. And we we did have an episode once where he, like, counts his paces and, like, you know, writes down a floor plan from memory as a result of the, like, paces that he was counting. Yeah. No, I I bought that totally. I thought, yeah, that makes sense. I buy it tentatively. So, uh, also tentatively. I buy it wholeheartedly and full-throatedly. So, Sam I buy it at full price. (laughs) I'll buy it when it's on sale. Um, So, Sam is also going to buy this on sale, but he does agree to help. And he tells his potential hops mama that his friend is stuck in a bank heist and needs to get busted out. But he'll call her later. Don't worry about it. Um, so it's just like a funny runner where he's like being very honest with her, but in like a similar way to her being like a cartoonish person, he is also sort of a cartoonish person in this moment where it's like, are you telling the truth or is this just a bit we're doing? Yeah. So back, back at the bank, the guards have noticed that the doctor has been missing for a little while. So Michael and his bag of medicines and other random shit appears to rescue Bly from bleeding out. Just beforehand, though, he tampers with an air hammer in one of the robber's bags. Then he mixes an upper and a downer from his scavenged medicines into another robber's energy drink. So the... Things traps are starting to get laid out. Upon re-entering the conference room, one of the robbers punches him for wandering off. Uh, but then the bad guy leaves, and Michael gets to work on Bly. The punch honestly doesn't seem to go anywhere. Like I guess it's just to like reestablish, like, hey, these guys are bad. But I, like, no, nothing I, comes of Michael being injured. No, I think they needed to do that because Michael was getting away with a lot. I guess. Like, I think, yeah, I think they just need to establish that, like, these guys, at the very least, are mad at him for, like, not, for just basically acting like he's not a hostage at all. Just to 
remind the audience, not remind the audience, but remind the audience that the bank robbers do consider him a hostage. Yeah, that's fair. Because I was thinking at one point, like, they're just letting him. I know Michael has, like, this kind of forceful personality that people will just kind of listen to him. But this is ridiculous. Yeah, those guys were letting him get away with so much. Yeah. There is another, I think he has said it at this point. There's a voiceover bit about how, um, like, you want it to feel like the, the best sort of position when you're in, like, a hostile situation is to, like, seem like you're helping as you, like, destroy them. And I do think that this has been one, this is, like, while I don't think that they're going to get points for, like, the alias itself necessarily, although we can have that conversation, what this alias does really well is make it feel like he is genuinely on the bad guy's side the whole time. Like, he just wants to, you know, save people's lives and, like, not make a fuss. But because of that, he gets a lot of access. And, like, why would anyone assume that this, like, doctor guy is the one that's, like, causing all of this havoc? You know, he's just trying to help. You know, he's stitching people up like you know i i I thought it was a a good it was it was a good snap decision alias uh once again proving your point that like this is where michael weston thrives like in an improvisational like emergency oh so that i i don't think i i don't remember if i i talked about this but when bly uh and his mold patrol were destroying michael's apartment one of the things that they destroyed was like a chair that i guess has been there (laughs) and um, as Michael is like starting to prep Bly for minor surgery, like to get the bullet out of him, he uh, he's like, oh, and by the way, that was my favorite chair. And then he pours alcohol on his wound. Uh, and it's just like, you know, peak drama. And I love it. No, I have that in my notes, too. <laughs> it's a great it's a, line. And it's a great it's moment. A great it's great pacing. Yeah. I will say, again, talking about Michael thriving here, I do remember on an earlier episode talking about how for some reason in my head, Michael Weston is a little bit Bugs Bunny. And I feel like <laughs> that's the most true here. Oh, it absolutely is. Like, yeah. It's this thing where he is just going around, like, causing hijinks and then being kind of ain't I a stinker about it. <laughs> yeah, it's excellent. Uh, So... We cut now this to... This really Phoenix. is a Looney Tunes episode. <laughs> yeah, that's honestly all that I want out of my media is Looney Tunes, but hot people. <laughs> but live action hot people. Uh, so speaking of live action hot people, we cut now to Fee and Sam, who we haven't really seen working together in a while. So this was like a nice, refreshing change. Sam is in peak form, bragging that Michael called him first in the emergency. And Fiona is like irate. Like she's not, she's irate at Sam, but she's clearly like genuinely like hurt that she wasn't his first call. Um, And so she covers it up. This episode, I think, Lately, the show has brought back Sam and Fee antagonism, and I, I'm usually and I, I not this, here for it, but in this episode, it works. It really does. When I was actually, I made a note for your episode about, like, because they're, they're bickering in your episode for next week as well, but, like, it feels less, like, antagonistic because Fee doesn't trust Sam, and now it feels antagonistic because they're, like, siblings. Yes, like, it very that was much exactly what I was thinking. 
yeah, like they've they finally reached the point of like they're so like familiar with each other that they bicker out of like habit more than anything else. And it's just a very cute dynamic. So uh, that's what's happening. And uh, they're just like arguing and like going to set the charges back at the bank. Michael handily rids Bly of his new arm jewelry and stitches him up. The office pals are making progress on their tunnel into the next office, but they need to move faster if they're going to get out of here alive. The vault is being emptied below and they have no idea how long that is going to take. And the silent alarm confirmed was never tripped. So they are all on their own. One of the bad guys comes into the room at this point. Dr. Michael is needed downstairs. Cut back to Sam and Fee outside the bank. Fee is still hurt about Sam getting called first, but goes to set the charges where um, Michael asked her to. Then down into this is also um, notable in that like we've we've given Burn Notice a hard time before for doing like intercut scenes and sequences like this really poorly, where it'll be like a full scene and then like two seconds of a different scene and then back for another full scene as if it's interspersed and happening simultaneously. But like this episode, I thought did a really good job of not wasting my fucking time. Right. Yes. No, everything about this episode is really economic and efficient and it's execution and like it's cutting. It's all very well done. Yeah, and even when, like, not a lot happens, like that sequence, you know, Fiona and Sam continue to bicker and place the charges. I didn't feel like it was time wasted or like, oh, they had to do this because we had to see what they're doing. Like, it felt like a necessary piece in, like, the ratcheting up of tension because, like, you know, there's all of this uncertainty. You know, what are the bad guys going to do? How long do they have to, like, rescue everyone? You know, are Fee and Sam going to make it in time? Is Michael going to keep everyone alive for them to do so? Like, it just, it feels like it's a building block rather than just like a you know plot servicing exposition dump and i really appreciated that yes so um dr michael down in the vault is uh tending to a guy whose air hammer piston came off into his leg you know after it was tampered with uh after giving this guy a pill that michael claims is for pain um a voiceover hints that it might not be michael demands to use their liquid nitrogen gun which he'd seen them use to get through a lock earlier to cauterize this wound mark shepherd is extremely suspicious but after a back and forth hands it over michael directs him to tie up the wound while he preps something but as soon as prescott's back is turned michael blows the nitro into prescott's gun that's conveniently laid right next to him because he didn't holster it before helping listen it's a 42 minute show give them a break i am fine with it i i mean i'm always fine with little things like this very episode. this this episode chris i know sure because not <laughs> soaked to the toes i mean i was about to say i'm more willing to be fine with things when like the macro stuff is so good and like everything is working but sure. what i do like about this episode is that michael's doing a lot of things but everything that he does feels opportunistic. Right. Yeah. Like, it doesn't feel like he all of a sudden has this like perfect 10 point plan that he just executes a bit at a time. It's just like, I'm going to just do whatever I can to fuck with these guys. And then exactly. based on their reaction, I will figure out the next step from there. Exactly. And it wasn't like his plan was, oh, Mark Shepard will put his gun down and I can put like fucking liquid nitrogen in it. I've, it felt mm-hmm. more like, oh, Mark Shepard put his gun down. I could put liquid nitrogen in it. 
Yeah, exactly. And there's also a couple of things that he does that don't really amount to much, but that like could have if he had more time. And that's what also that I liked is that he's doing a lot and not all of it perfectly fits into his plan. It's more just like he's kind of doing everything and then whatever works first, he's going to like pivot towards. Because like the the thing later with the pills that he's about to give Mark Shepard and things like that, like that those things never go anywhere. But like it's just an example of like Michael being like, I don't have a plan. So I'm just going to do whatever I can to like, you know, take control of this situation. And I thought that that was a really smart choice because usually they're like in the in the interest of efficiency. He only does like two things and they go perfectly. And that's really boring. Yeah. Uh, cool. So Prescott's gun has been nitrogened. So um, we have that to look forward to. But everyone is called back upstairs because the tunnel gang has been discovered um, but just when an innocent office grunt was about to get got, uh, and be punished for their insubordination, Bly makes a heroic sacrifice and takes the fall. He's like, this no, is no, a no, good this- and important beat. Yeah. Like, uh, do you want to talk about it? Yeah. No. Yeah. Cause I think like this episode doesn't work without this beat. I actually think, cause I think it's so important that we establish that like Jason Bly is awful, but also like not a bad person. Like the fact that like it um he's willing to like step in for this innocent person or like this guy, this civilian, because like he's still, I guess, an agent or whatever and does his duty and stuff like that adds dimension to him and makes the fact that at the end of this episode they're able to have like a detente like believable. Because like he's not chaotic evil, right? I kind of think I kind of think Bly is cha- uh, chaotic good. Yeah, and but the thing is that he didn't seem like he was chaotic good until, sure, until that this beat. moment. Yeah, no, yeah. I think I agree with you. Um, yeah, no, it, it is a really good moment. Like, and and this is one of the few episodes of Burn Notice where like we are allowed to see the shades of gray because like this we we've talked before about how this show really like has a hard time dealing with like nuance and giving people complications because of like how it is structured. Like we, the, the episode with the vice president from the West wing where like the thesis was supposed to be about like how Michael Weston has done some fucked up stuff. And like, is he actually a bad person? Doesn't work because nothing Michael Weston has ever done has been morally ambiguous, but like, Jason Bly and like even in just this episode like is able to contain multitudes in such like a fun and like surprising way. Yes. So anyways, uh, Bly contains multitudes and like steps in the way and is like, nope, you can shoot me. It's fine. But luckily (laughs) Prescott's- His multitudes are about to come out. (laughs) His multitudes are about to come out. But luckily Prescott wants to do the deed himself, but his gun just got got. And when he shoots uh, at Bly, his gun is fucked and it explodes in his hand. Uh, Prescott screams for another goon to shoot Bly instead. But Michael takes this, you know, momentary chains of plans to step in the way himself and essentially bargains a life for a life. Like, Prescott, I'll fix your hand if you let this guy live. Like, take the stuff, guard them, whatever you want. But, like, please don't kill this man. I'm a doctor. Hippocratic oath, etc. Uh, Price Prescott agrees for the moment 
telling his guards to get the rest of the office workers down into the vault so they can kind of keep an eye on them as Michael goes to treat his hand. A few minutes later, they're all taking folks downstairs in shifts. One of the robbery guys tells Prescott, who is still being tended to by Dr. Mike, that they are running a little bit behind schedule. Should they call the boat? Prescott, like, obviously knows that this is not great, that this random hostage knows that they have a boat. So he's like, hey, get downstairs with the rest of them. But it's too late too late because Michael's got a lead. Uh, Michael joins up with Bly on his way downstairs and asks him to help him with a diversion. He asks Bly if he trusts him and with zero hesitation, Bly's like, yeah, what do you need? Which is some primo enemies to lover shit and I am here for it. It's so good. It's like, so good. And it's yeah, so it's- genuine and earnest. It's just like, we are professionals. We don't have time for our petty no- bullshit. Like, what do you need? My blood but brother. It's, it's not, yeah, it's not just that too, because it's not just that they're being professionals. It's that, like, Michael's earned it. Like, this episode earns this. Oh, it fully does. Like, it's it's perfectly paced at every, every single beat. No beat is wasted. Yes. Not a single and moment of this episode is wasted on nonsense. Not only is, but not only is it not wasted but like all every single beat like functions in a way to believably get these two characters from disliking each other to being cool with each other and like all like it never feels unnatural yeah or motivated or anything yes everything feels incredibly motivated Perfect. So uh, the distraction that they uh, settle on uh, very quickly is that Bly faints into a doorway, uh, conveniently the doorway that uh, Michael's got his whole phone situation stashed in, and it buys them a minute or two because he's like, this man is in shock. Let me handle it. I will get him downstairs as soon as I can. Don't worry. I'm a doctor. Uh, And since this doctor guy seems to be on the level, the bad guys are like, yeah, fine. We'll see you in a minute. So Michael calls back out to Sam, who's impatient to get this job done so he can get back to his beer, babe. Fiona is nearly done setting charges, but Michael tells them that they're on to plan B. The hostages are moving downstairs. babes. (laughs) Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) The Office is a good show. That's for my Gen Z fans who love The Office. If I know if I know two things about Gen Z, if I know three things about Gen Z, they like The Office, they like Fortnite, and they like Billie Eilish. <laughs> so Michael's like, I'm just sorry. like a young cool person who said like peppers a lot of likes into like his words. Well, that's because. Um... Teenage girls have revolutionized language and communication, and we should give them more credit. Oh, yes, I, I actually have a couple of uh, academic articles that you can read <laughs> if you'd be interested in learning more. I also have a podcast episode if that's more your speed. I want to be incredibly clear that at, I am always making fun of Brie. <laughs> I am not making fun of our listeners. I love our listeners. I tolerate Unless them. they hold questionable political views. Like the listener who was mad that we were like, hey, don't call the cops on people because, you know. Yeah. Police brutality. Oh, boy. Uh, okay. So to finish out this call that Michael has put out uh, to Sam, he's like, don't blow up that office. It's a, it's that That's not going to work anymore. But I know that 
a boat is involved somehow and that the bad guys are communicating with said boat via a walkie-talkie signal. So it can't be far. Go find a boat and their frequency so that we can, like, try something out. I don't know what, but just, like, figure it out. And this is, like, another example of a time where Michael doesn't have a plan yet. He's just like, I found some new information. Go see what you can do with it. You know, he's just, they, they just need some leverage. So, they you know, there's no specific thing that they're doing. They just need to find this information and then kind of go from there. So Bly and Michael stumble downstairs, but not before Michael briefly fucks with an elevator using a door jam. Um, downstairs in the vaults, the bad guys discover the busted elevator as Michael tends to Prescott's hand. As Prescott laments that the bank must be cursed, Michael sleight of hands a wrench from a robber's bag into his doctor's bag. As Prescott continues to get super superstitious, Michael blandly states that he needs a few items upstairs for further medical stuff and asks Prescott if he wants some meds. Again, Michael forks over some pain pills, but not even the voiceover wants to spoil this surprise yet. Uh, back outside, Sam and Fee test several frequencies on a walkie, trying to find the right one that the bad guys are on, when Sam decides that he needs to call his new lady friend so she doesn't worry. They finally get the right frequency, but it's encrypted. Fiona remarks that she can't believe she was wasting her time while Sam was buttering up his bimbo. A great line with equally great delivery. They decide to go find an in-range marina to narrow this down further when some cops roll up nearby who could blow this whole thing up before Michael has the chance to get folks to safety. Fiona heads to distract them while Sam heads down beachside to find the getaway boat. It turns out that Fiona's way of distracting the police officers away from the obviously being robbed bank is to steal a cafe cart's tip jar and then claim that she did it because the vendor was leering at her. Uh, this cop is weirdly, like, not concerned at all about a broad daylight theft. I mean, it's not really. I mean, it's a theft, but, like... She steals his tip jar. That's his property. But the thing is that she takes the tip jar and then stands there. <laughs> like... But the, but the cop doesn't even say, like, ma'am, please give him the tip. Like, he's just like, you guys deal with it. And then he gets, like, another call and, yeah. like, leaves. I also want to... <laughs> I also really quickly um, want to acknowledge that in your notes, <laughs> you said the cop is weirdly nonplussed. And then I think you questioned whether or not you used the word nonplussed correctly. <laughs> and so you said something else instead. I did. Did I use nonplussed correctly? Here's the thing. I don't know. I don't know either. It's one of those words where either it means exactly what you think it means or it actually means the opposite of what you think it means. Like yeah, it's bemused. exactly that kind of word. And I, I can never remember which one it is. <laughs> or like spin, spend thrift. Uh, yeah, no, I, I appreciate that you pointed that out and that you knew exactly why I did what I did. Uh, you know me so well. Um, <laughs> so anyways, the distraction ploy works. The cop is gone. Uh, and then Fiona, like, as soon as the cop leaves, she just, like, hands the tip jar back and orders a coffee. And the car the cafe cart guy is like, what? And it's very fun. Um, Michael, back in the bank, back in the bank, 
Michael checks on Bly and slyly slides him the wrench, telling him that if something bad happens, to make his move. Michael also reclaims the actual pain pills that Michael had given him earlier. Bly tucks away his new weapon as Michael does a switcheroo with the pills and brings Prescott the wrong ones. Finally, we learn what pills he's been giving out to all the bad guys whenever they want pain medication. It's pilocarpine, which I have spelled wrong in my note, but is spelled correctly later on. Prescott is suspicious again, which I really appreciate. I always love when, like, the bad guy of the episode isn't just, like, willing to go with Michael's bullshit. And it's happened, like, two or three times now where, like, the bad guy seems to be someone who has seen Burn Notice before and is just not willing to, like, say yes to the first weird thing that Michael suggests. So he's like, how about you take some, too? Yeah, this episode is really good, I think, generally – even though I said earlier that they were letting him get away with a lot, having because robbing a bank is such a stressful time, like specific like thing, that it they always protest just enough, and Michael always justifies his action, actions just enough that it seems plausible that they will go along with Michael. Because they're in a hurry, and he sounds plausible. And he hasn't actively done anything to impede their ability to rob this bank. The only things that he has impeded is their, like, murderous tendencies. Yeah. Like, as as far as they know, this guy just wants everyone to be okay. Exactly. Like, they, they cannot in any way connect all of the fuckery that's been happening to Michael. He's annoyingly uh, calm and condescending, (laughs) but he seems to want the best. Well, he's got he's got an MD, you know, and that entitles you to a certain amount of condescension. This is true. So anyway, so Prescott is suspicious and is like, how about you take them first? And so Michael's like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Uh, And the voiceover calmly explains that taking too much of whatever he's taking uh, has, quote, the effect of a sarin gas attack. He never explains this, and it never comes to fruition. This is what I was talking about earlier about, like, one of his ploys that doesn't really go anywhere, but is, like, a good example of, like, he's just sort of throwing spaghetti at the wall. Um, But I'm very curious what the effect of a sarin gas attack looks like in the form of a pill. So, you know, maybe a future episode. Yeah, it never does anything to Prescott. Well, because Prescott never takes them, but we'll get to that. So we don't does know he never that take means. them? I, that's true. He never does. I thought like at one Mm-mm. point, are you sure? And this is, yeah, I'm sure. Because no. like that yeah. was my, um, that was, that was my example earlier of like some of the, because Michael is yeah. just sort of like doing a lot of stuff, some of it just doesn't connect. And this is one of them. So uh, we don't, so Prescott is going to, after Michael like takes it and like proves that he swallowed it, Prescott's like, I'm going to wait and see what happens to you, which is like a second layer of like, genuinely good suspicion like yeah that's probably good don't just like watch a guy swallow some pills and then be like all right i'll you seem like you're fine i'm gonna take them immediately like i guess they're not cyanide um so he's like i'm gonna wait a little bit and see what happens and so michael's like okay so he heads upstairs with him and the guy with the leg wound who he has already weakened i think with these pills i think earlier he gave the guy with the leg wound these uh polycarpine pills Prescott peels off to go unload one of the money bags since they can't use the elevator anymore. And uh, Michael takes out this leg wound goon easily in his weakened state before forcing himself to throw up those mystery pills. 
even though this is a great episode of Burnout, is I have a feeling that the screenshot that I took of Michael uh, trying to force himself to vomit uh, is going to be the promo <laughs> picture for this episode. <laughs> it's a very funny screenshot, so I think that's what's going to happen. I apologize. I genuinely do love this episode. I hope that's come across. Um, no, I don't think they've got it. I don't think they've got it yet. Um, so cut to the marina. Sam makes a little bit of progress finding the getaway boater. Uh, back at the bank, Michael relieves the Can I say really quickly? Out. Sure. We come back to Michael, and God bless Jeffrey Donovan. He is really acting out. I just threw up. <laughs> like, he looks like he is suddenly so, like, weirdly out of it. And not out of it, but, like, he looks, like, tired like, and, like, unstable sick. And, yeah. Unstable. And he's just, like, I just, I can just, like, hear the director being, like, okay, remember, you just threw up. And action. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, old, old, old Kretschmer. Old Give me Kretschmer. more. It doesn't look like you just threw up. Really <laughs> sell it. <laughs> and he does. Uh, Michael relieves this newly passed out man of his gun, but there's only one bullet left in the chamber. Better make it count. Uh, Michael then hears the bad guys speaking nearby uh, about how they're wrapping up, and there is a new policy um, that they've put into place. If a hostage has seen their face, the hostage dies. So everyone, that's not great. Downstairs, the hostages are instructed to move away from the room that they're in to the vault itself. And Paula remarks to Bly that they're absolutely going to suffocate in there. There is not enough air for this many people to be in the vault once they're locked in. The hostages are starting to get anxious, but Bly has learned his lesson and tells them all to be patient. Everything is going to be fine. Back upstairs, Michael calls out to Sam one final time, who has found uh, the boat getaway driver and suggests that they use something called Project Quicksilver. Right as Sam walks up to the boat guy to make his move, though, his lady friend calls. Fuck, this is a well-woven episode. My God. Anyways, this relaxed beer last thinks correctly that Sam's life might be a little too intense for her in her early retirement millionaire bliss. And reluctantly, while sticking up the boat boy, Sam agrees. I so that do like, plot has been wrapped up. It's wrapped up. And it is really good. I did appreciate that he was doing this while he was getting, like, boat guy. Because th- that was the most unbelievable, like, Michael t- or Sam takes a call. <laughs> I was like, why is he picking up this phone now? But, I, I mean, I get it. But it works. And it is really good. I enjoy it. Yeah, like, while he's, like, while she's talking, he is, like, telling the guy to put his hands up and, like, turn around. Like, he's, like, making a minor arrest while he's on the phone with this woman who's like, yeah, I think your life might be a little intense for me. So, very fun. Great button for that scene. Uh, Back to the bank. The robbers are about to start loading up the truck. They've got, like, all the money bags, like, in the lobby area next to the dead body. Um, And Michael, hidden nearby, removes the silencer from his gun and then hides the now much more compact gun, like in his belt as he goes out front to where all the money bags and all the bad guys are. And he's like, is that why he takes the silencer off so he can shove it in his ass? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I was was also confused at first. I was like, why is he taking the silencer off? Like, does it make it more accurate? But there was no accompanying spy tip to confirm that. But then he puts it in his, his pants. And I was like, Oh, that's probably fair. Like that the gun plus silencer is pretty long. uh, And Michael's got kind of a short butt. Yeah. 
I thought it was going to be a thing of like, well, he can't shoot all three of them, so it has he has to do something with the noise. Oh uh, yeah, no, it was, up, it was it was just to shove it in his ass. Yeah. Uh, so he like basically he so he hides the gun on him and he goes out and he's like, oh my god, you guys, your friend had a stroke. Um, Prescott, who is so close to getting out of this haunted fucking bank with the score of a lifetime, is unmoved by the uh, life or death plight of one of his minions and is like, he can die. That's fine. I have all this money now. Uh, but then Prescott's walkie-talkie goes off. The boat guy, held at gunpoint by Sam, uh, pretends to have been shot and is freaking out over the airwaves and, and demanding to know why Prescott didn't tell them who they were robbing, who owned the bank. And then at one point he goes, oh, my God, you didn't know, did you? We're dead. We're all dead. Oh, my God. Oh, my the God. They're guy, coming back. The boat guy is getting really into it. I know. The boat guy is, like, doing so. I don't know how much of this Sam gave him, but boat guy is having the time of his life. <laughs> the boat guy. Yeah, he is, is selling it like his life depends on it. And the, he probably thinks that it does. The boat guy has definitely done some UCB classes. <laughs> yeah, the, the boat guy definitely went to Juilliard um, yeah. before he turned to a life of crime to pay back his student loans. So um, there's the, after he's like, oh, my God, they're coming back. There's a beat of silence while the bank bad guys start to like look around at each other nervously. And then Sam gets on the horn and he makes a lot of threats about how if anyone is hurt or dead or if any money is missing from his vault, they're all going to die. The only sad thing about this and the thing that's about to happen next is that he doesn't identify himself as Chuck Finley. I know. <laughs> I mean, I think probably because some of them might get away, he doesn't like, like Chuck Finley only works like, you know, person to person. Because if Chuck Finley gets too big, he can't use that alias anymore. True. Uh, but I was also a little disappointed it was not Chuck Finley who owned the bank. Um <laughs> Because Noted. Michael is up, Michael is about to give us a speech that is up there with if the devil had a name it'd be. <laughs> uh, we'll, all right, we're about to get to that. Okay, so uh, so th we're we're hearing all this in the lobby, and then we cut downstairs uh, to like the couple of bad guys that are still in the vault, like trying to herd all of the people into the vault, and the diatribe of Sam continues, and the two guys that are leading the hostages are momentarily distracted, and Bly finally makes his move, braining them with the wrench. It is awfully easy to take these two guys down, but I guess it's been, like, a fucking day, and um, at least one of them has been drugged at one point by Michael, so I'm yeah. gonna give this to them. Um, but yeah, the entire bunch of hostages essentially like take down these final two guys and like take control of the walkie. Uh, descent starts to spread. The bad guy goons aren't happy with Prescott because there's this crazy guy who owns the bank and they didn't know about that. Michael then interrupts laying it on so delightfully thick about, uh, how a man was brought. <laughs> this speech is so over the it's top so, it's so over the top and like i feel like it's at this point it's like michael just wants to be involved again like he he sam had such a good layer to it and like because like they didn't rehearse that we know that that's something that sam came up with because michael certainly didn't say like oh you know what you should do like say that like someone crazy owns the bank like this is something that sam has improvised and i think michael just wants I to mean, play in the space with him i mean yes i mean that could have been what project quicksilver was 
Uh, oh, that's true. But like, I but just still. like this speech that Michael gives is so unnecessary. But I think he just wants to be like a part of it. And so, anyway, so the 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 monologue goes like this: uh, Late one night, uh, a a man was brought into the hospital who was tortured so badly that Michael couldn't believe he was still breathing, and a man was with him. The man on the radio. Michael will never forget the voice. He put, uh, the man on the radio put a gun to Michael's head and told him that the man who he had tortured had robbed him and that he wanted uh, Michael to save him so that the pain would last longer. Michael did what he could. Um, and the reason that he's even in the building today is that he was instructed to come here for his money, his blood money. Quote, what I like about that is that it feels like halfway through Michael's like, Oh shit, this is kind of a coincidence. I need to tie it together so it doesn't feel <laughs> random. This is what I'm saying is Michael didn't have a plan when he started this speech. He's just like, this is going to be really funny. Um, and then then he says, quote, There's a place between life and death. Amazing how long man can linger there. Um, <laughs> what I love about this too is that this is more than this doctor has emoted the entire episode. <laughs> Like, the whole time, he's just been, like, calm condescension. Like, verging on annoyed sometimes. But now but then he's, now... Like, haunted and... <laughs> yes. It's... I was, like, squealing just, like, as this speech sh- was happening. Because I totally <laughs> forgot about this speech. Like, I've seen this episode of Burn Notice less than a year ago. So, like, it has not been that long. But I fully forgot about this monologue. And it's so fucking choice, Chris. <laughs> He should have had a like a spotlight come down on him. <laughs> Someone needed to hand him his hat and cane and a stool. Ugh. So um, Prescott has a similar reaction to you and I, which is like, all right, Dr. Mike, calm down. Um, and then calls downstairs to the goons who are uh, in the in the vault to bring up the rest of the money, but there's no response. So everyone starts like really freaking out. And Prescott's like, let's just get to the truck and leave. I don't know what's happening. Something is fucking crazy, but like, look how much money there is here. Like, we need to go put it in the van and get out of here. Uh, but as they all turn to go, the truck explodes. God bless Fiona. It's so good because it's actually very well timed. And then, like, we see Fiona, like, and it's very important that we do see her listening in because her timing is so choice. Because literally, right before she does it, Mark Shepard shouts, There's nothing wrong with the truck. <laughs> and then, like, half a second later, like, the entire truck explodes, like, this beautiful giant explosion. Um, and then we, we see Fiona is standing nearby and sipping a coffee from that cart that she semi-robbed earlier, which I thought was a great detail. The remaining goons are ready to revolt, so Prescott just shoots all of them. He just kills everyone. And not Michael, for some reason. Uh, and he starts to run off with one bag of money over his shoulder and the murder weapon in hand when the police, led by the cop from earlier, swoop in. Uh, and then Michael, or not Michael, and then um, Prescott has, like, a final beat of, like, crazy villain laughter because he cannot believe what a bad day he's had. Uh, Mark Shepard sells this so well. <laughs> it's it's just like, oh, man, it's so unhinged. It's so, uh, it's such a perfect, like, button for the bad guy this episode. Yeah, and it's not, yeah, it's not like an I'm so evil laugh. It's a, like... No. I'm so fucked laugh. It's like, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot believe it. 
this day is like you you have to laugh. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael like even that. remarks to him right before he leaves the building. He's like, "Man, this really isn't your day, huh?" <laughs> oh God! And so that's a wrap good. on Mark Shepard. And that is a wrap on Mark Shepard. Uh, so everyone is safe. Uh, Michael and Bly uh, crash next to each other in a couple of chairs and pass back and forth the alcohol that Michael's been using on wounds for its original purpose and reflect on the conversation they were having back when they were enemies, not lovers. Uh, Bly now trusts Michael implicitly and promises to make things right at the loft and with Barry. And Michael's like, well, if you're in a helpful mood, I do need one more favor. And Bly's like, yeah, all right. We are in love now. Uh, Paula and Madeline debrief uh, about Michael's amazing braveness as Michael fishes out a hidden file from Madeline's broiler. Uh, and like in this very small scene, that's actually like genuinely really charming where um, Madeline like sees him pull this stack of papers from her broiler. And she's like, what you think that I'm just like never going to use my broiler. And he's like, well, I've been right so far. Um, and it's just like this really quick back and forth, but it's like really cute. And I don't know. It's no, like, it is. It's good. It's just, it's just, it's so simple. It's so simple. Scenes with Madeline are better when they're simple. Yes. Uh, and so Paula leaves and Michael starts to follow her out because his toxic mold issue obviously has been taken care of. And it, he reminds us that this has all taken place over the course of a single day. Um, but Michael, uh, but Madeline seems like genuinely bummed that he's leaving. Like she, you know, she was kind of, kind of excited that he was going to stay the night and like they were going to have some mother son time. So he agrees to stay for dinner. Um, it's very cute. It's a very nice scene. Once again, keeping it simple, Madeline and Michael, very sweet sometimes. Uh, back the next morning, Barry and Michael debrief. Barry is off the hook and Michael doesn't hold a grudge, but suggests that the next time that Barry's wired up, he should offer to pay for lunch to tip him off. Because the the start the parallel start and end of this episode is who's paying for lunch. I almost think that they shouldn't use that as a tip off because that's all anyone ever talks about on this show. <laughs> yeah, but basically all everyone ever talks about in the show is like, Michael, I feel like you should be paying for lunch. Hey, Michael, can you pay for lunch if I do this for you? Hey, Michael, you know how you have no money <laughs> and refuse to get a job? Pay for my lunch. Buy me a mojito. But like a nice one. I've earned it. So uh, Barry takes off and Michael walks to go take his spot um, at the table where Fee and Sam are arguing over who was more useful this episode. Uh, and it turns out they're still bickering because Fee's uh, hurt feelings have continued about Sam being Michael's first call. They continue to like escalate this argument with Michael, like attempting to like break in until finally he reveals that actually he did call fee first but she didn't answer so from now on sam actually will be his first call and it, <laughs> it's just it's such a funny button it's just like all right children listen so um back at the apartment michael is taping up his favorite chair uh as bly looks over his blackmail file that michael has generously turned over bly for his part has found the bank and banker attached to the account number that michael has but the account is just a number no name or organization attached plus uh, it was being monitored and either Bly or Barry or someone tripped the alarm. So whoever's account it is knows that Michael is coming. End of episode. Dun, dun, dun. God, that was such a fucking good episode, Chris. 
Like I was, I, I talked about it on Twitter and I've talked about it with you, but I was so scared to review this episode, especially because it was my episode and like taking notes, like inherently ruins the TV watching experience. And I mean, I don't have time to watch the episode twice, like once for enjoyment and once for notes, like who has that fucking time? But like, I was not disappointed. In fact, deconstructing this episode made me appreciate it more because like it is a structural thing of beauty as much as it is an experiential thing of beauty. Yes. Agreed. Like it works for a television nerd and for a television casual. That is like a fucking hard thing to do. This is, I don't even know where the fuck this episode came from. It feels like it's not even like, it's the perfect burn notice episode, but it also doesn't feel at all like any other burn notice episode. No, it doesn't. Why do you think that is? Like, how, I mean, did, how did this happen? Is this like a 12,000 monkeys finally wrote Shakespeare sort of a thing? Like, what's up? I I think that, like, I mean, I think it's just a talented writer had a good premise and, like, pitched the idea. And they're like, yeah, sure. I think it just happened. I think, like, lightning in a bottle. I mean, I also think that, like, bottle episodes like this like single location like trapped episodes are always good like i my favorite episodes of most shows are ones where the characters are trapped in a single location because it makes for like fewer distractions because it's hard to get distracted if like you only have one set piece like you really do have to like maximize character and motivation because like your surroundings aren't very interesting and like this is certainly the proof of that rule yeah no i agree that's not always the case that those are my favorite but i do when when done well those are very good even when done like mediocre they're still like it's is it's easier for those episodes to be good than not i can see that so it's just we still have to talk about spice ups it's it's peak competence porn you know like you've you've given me shit about like that being my thing and i fully own that i love competence porn but like single location like adventures are you know the purest form of competence porn because you're trapped unexpectedly and you have limited resources and limited time true it's like a micro apocalypse yes It's, it's perfect i love this kind of episode Ugh. Fuck. Okay. So uh, I have 12 here that I thought were like, okay, spy tips. Um, But I'm willing to give a few of them away because I know that we're going to hit our mark. No problem. Uh, So number one, government agents have to stay within the law, but they still have plenty of options to hit you below the belt. Sometimes a bullet to the head is a lot easier than a slow death drowning in red tape. I don't know why I kept this. That's not nothing. Yeah, that's nothing. nothing. (laughs) Okay. Hang on. Do you ever think about what, burn noticed merch should be because we should sell merch to our 80 listeners a week yeah well there's there's no downside and should i'm just saying like should there be a shirt that says that's nothing (laughs) (laughs) uh cool okay so spy tips Number one, there are a number of different choices when you take over a building by force. Do you keep the hostages face down on the floor or do you move them into a room together? How do you cut all lines of communication out? And how do you deal with the place's security methods? Whatever your style, hostile takeovers are about one thing, total dominance. So this one is, I I will admit, is sort of on the fence, but 
because of like how many considerations there are in this short period of time, like it almost acts as like a checklist for like, if you're going to take over a building, these are the things that you need to think about. And even if like individually, like, yeah, no shit. It's sort of a helpful little like to-do list when you're taking over a building. I agree. Cool. No, this Number two. In a, in a hostage situation, any idiot can steal a gun and start shooting. It's a great way to get a bunch of innocent people killed. Keeping people alive means fighting like a spy. And fighting like a spy means disguising attacks as attempts to help. It means making acts of man seem like acts of God. I like that. That's good. We can keep that. It's good. Also, it's pretty good writing. Yeah. Uh, nice, nice job, Michael. Uh, number three, cutting through a wall with scissors isn't as hard as it sounds. Start in an electrical socket and saw through the hard surface of the drywall and the lower layers are a lot easier. Yeah, no, that's good. That's like, yeah. that's not a thing I thought of. And I was like, oh yeah, I learned something. Yeah. Uh, number four, in an enclosed space, getting out, getting around a cell phone jammer is a game of who's got the stronger signal. A cell phone jammer broadcasts a powerful signal over a range of frequencies, but it can't compete with an entire ethernet wired to serve as one big antenna. Sure. I can't do anything with that, but that's practical. Yeah. (laughs) If I was smart and went to spy school with Michael, I would know how to do something with that. Uh, Number five, the massive air pressure that makes air hammers effective also makes them dangerous. Tamper in any way with the locking collar that holds the bit in place and the air hammer becomes a very inaccurate gun with a single bullet. Yeah, no, that's good too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I could probably even do something with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right, so we're already at number five, but let's keep on trucking. Number six, mixing medications is always a bad idea, especially when one's an upper and one's a downer. Anxiety and allergy meds together are a scary combination, and that's before you add the caffeine of an energy drink. Not a Red Bull, specifically. (laughs) A a non-denominational energy drink. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is also good. Cool. Number seven, liquid nitrogen can cool a wound to 150 below, freezing the cells and cutting off blood flow. Supercooling also damages metal. Freeze the inside of a gun, and the next time it gets hot, it'll rip apart as if it's loaded with the wrong ammo. This one I'm curious about the accurate or the trueness of it. Uh, For which part? The fact that it can cauterize a wound or the fact that it can... Yeah, the wound part. Yeah, I was wondering, that was actually, I, I was going to say that too. It's like, that was the one that I was more like, do I feel safe using this as medical advice? But I mean, Michael you shouldn't Weston do it. it. So it must be true. I mean, you shouldn't do it, obviously. But like, I was, I'm just wondering if it's effective. Hang on, I'm going to look it up. Can liquid nitrogen cauterize a wound? Yeah, sometimes a physician uses liquid nitrogen as a less painful alternative, though it is less effective. Okay, good to know. Good to know. All right, we definitely that's definitely a good tip then. Hell yeah, and it's kind of two tips for the price of one. Uh, yeah. Number eight, elevators have so many safety devices that they're easy to sabotage. Disable any part and the entire system shuts down. This one's a s- slightly vague. Well, but, like, paired with the on-screen, he just, like, yeah. puts a door jam into the door mechanism. And yeah. I also no, buy I'm... that as, like, advice. Like, elevators are such a, like, potentially dangerous thing that if something goes wrong, of course they shut down. They're not going to fucking risk it. That makes sense. No, yeah. Cool. Uh, 
Uh, number nine, uh, life with a hypochondriac mother gives you a useful knowledge of pharmaceuticals. In low doses, pilocarpine causes dry mouth. In high doses, it has roughly the same effect as sar- a sarin gas attack. So we still don't know what that means, but we do know that specifically pilocarpine is bad in large doses. The thing I want to know really quickly, Ed, does it cause dry mouth or does it cure dry mouth? I don't know. Let's look it up. I'm in a helpful mood today because I'm I'm so happy to have watched this episode. Uh, yeah, you're being oh, very no, nice. <laughs> Pilocarpine is a medication used to reduce pressure inside the eye and treat dry mouth. Uh, as eye drops, it is used to manage angle closure glaucoma until surgery can be performed, ocular hypertension, primary open angle glaucoma, and to bring about constriction of the pupil following its dilation. Got it. Because huh. it would be weird, like... If it was a medication that caused dry mouth, like that, that was its purpose. <laughs> no, it says it. Uh, I, maybe I God, misread doctor. it. But it, says, it, it does say it cures dry mouth. Doctor, my mouth is so wet. <laughs> oh, well, if someone's going to be making a call, it's going to be me because everything is wet right now. Number 10. In a weakened state, you want to avoid pressure on your car- carotid artery. Block the blood flow to your brain, and you black out in four seconds. This that is obviously, sounds... in, you know, in second person because of the way that that scene played out. But yeah, that's useful. Yeah. No. Yeah. Totally. Um, I didn't know that carotid was spelled like that. C a r o t i d. That feels wrong. It looks weird. Like I, I always assumed it was spelled like you know, like how you garrot someone, like. It's like somebody uh-huh. tried to garrot Michael in season one. That's how I yeah. assumed carotid was spelled, like C-A-R-R-O-T-E-D. It's weird to see a word end in I-D. Yeah, very weird. Um, That's, but yeah. Bad word, good spy tip. All right, finally, number 11. The coating on tablets and medicine keeps them from dissolving in your stomach right away, which buys you a little time to find privacy and do the only safe thing, get them out of your system. This is like on the edge and but it's like if you need to take pills um but don't want them to have an effect you have a little bit of time so like don't try to get out of swallowing them just try to get out of the way once you have yeah that tracks that's 11 fucking spy tips my dude that is 11 11 practical spy tips yeah that's two episodes for the price of one. Um, all right. So speaking of, it's time to rate that episode. So uh, there were enough uh, practical versus passive spy tips. So pass for that. Uh, does Michael use spycraft over violence to solve the weekly case? Hell yeah, he does. Hell yeah, he does. Yes, boy. Um, fuck, this is a good episode. I love this episode so much. Uh, number three. Does he uh, unveil or revisit a distinct alias? We were, yeah, we were going to talk about this. I don't think he does. Like the doc, he doesn't have a name, and he doesn't have any like specific credentials other than I'm a doctor and I talk with zero emotion in in my voice. Yeah, I don't think that is enough for it to be an alias. Yeah, no, I don't think this is an alias episode. No. No, this is definitely not an alias episode. It's a burn notice episode. 
were the sidekicks used well? So did Fee get to blow something up, and did Sam get to be peak Bruce Campbell? Hell yeah! Hell yeah! Fee gets to blow something up spectacularly. Sam gets to have lots of, you know, funny date moments. And both of them together are an absolute delight. So I'm really glad that we're we're putting Sam and Fee back in the same room. Yeah, no, good stuff. All like good they're, stuff. They're good apart. They're good together. Everything is good. This is a great episode of Burn Notice. They are but. chocolate and peanut butter. <laughs> uh, which one is which? Uh... Fee is chocolate. Sam is peanut butter. Yeah, but Fee is like a like a higher uh, cacao percentage. Yeah, yeah, like a dark chocolate. Definitely yeah. like a dark chocolate. Yeah, so there's like a bitterness to it, and it's like, yeah. Or like sometimes you get that dark chocolate, and they've put like a little bit of chili pepper in it. Oh, hell yeah. I don't yeah. – and that I think still might be good with peanut butter. Uh, okay. Yeah. It's a great episode of Burn Notice. However, and this might be controversial – do you think that this is a great episode of television? I mean, <laughs> again, now we're at this thing of like, we've declared other episodes of Burn Notice great episodes of television. And none of them were as good as this episode. No, not, not a single goddamn one. Um, okay, so I want to actually briefly go through those before we make a determination. Uh, although I think you might be able to see what we're putting down. Um, okay, so the first episode of Burn Notice that we ever considered a great episode. Of yeah, you'll be able to see what we're putting. Like, <laughs> no one at this point thinks we don't like the episode. <laughs> this might be the first episode that Reddit isn't mad at us for. Okay, so the first episode of tele- of Burn Notice that we thought was a great episode of television was season one, episode six, Unpaid Debts. So this is the episode... Uh, where we first meet uh, Sam's Navy SEAL buddy who fucks Madeline. Right, yes. The one, the one where there's uh, boat smugglers and mm-hmm. um, like a gang of some kind, and they're fighting over money that was hidden in a boat. Yeah, no, that was good. That was fun. It was a fun episode. Yeah, uh, not as good s- as this, but yeah. No, certainly not. Uh, so the second episode, the only other episode in season one that we considered a great episode of Burn Notice was season one, uh, episode eight, which is called Wanted Man. So we've talked about this one a lot. This has been kind of our North Star for a while. This is the episode where Fiona decides to become a bounty hunter for a little while and uh, spends the entire episode trolling someone who could have played the mountain on Game of Thrones. Yes, that's right. That was also a very good episode of television. But there was also I, a lot of, like, extraneous bullshit that, you know, bad breaks just doesn't have. True, yes. Uh, okay. Then in terms of season two episodes that we thought were great episodes of television, we've got episode one, season three, Trust Me. That's the one where uh, that guy uh, lost all his money to a loan shark, so they con the con men. Um, as Michael is trolling a Pakistani sty, uh, spy to get information about Carla. Yeah. That's the one, no, that that's the one with Zeke. The one with Zeke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was good. That was good. That, that, Again, was, a, nothing... that was an okay. Yeah. Nothing special. Uh, next up, uh, we also considered episode four of season two, a great episode of television, Comrades. We've actually already talked about that this episode. That one, mm-hmm. I think, is one of the closer ones to the, like, quality of Bad Breaks. 
Only because mm-hmm. yeah. like it was just a genuinely cool and fun setup that they seemed to have to like uh, adapt to a lot in spite yeah, of I, it being a Nate episode. And I will say, I do think for me in general, when talking about TV, that is the thing that pushes like a really good episode into a great episode is like being really well executed, but also having like a very unique or interesting concept or premise. Yes, definitely. Uh, and then finally, the only other episode of Burn Notice that we have considered a great episode is uh, season two, episode seven, Rough Seas. And it's the one where Madeline's boyfriend comes back to town um, and <laughs> Michael plays a beta man. That's right. <laughs> What's one but, of the last episodes that Michael Horowitz wrote? Uh, let me find out for you. Because... I remember he wrote one that we really liked. Yes. He, well, he, I know he wrote Turn and Burn, which is the season two, episode two, the Tunisian counterfeiter episode, which we thought was kind of a silly episode. Uh, It did not get a great episode of Burn Notice um, thing. No. But he was also writing with Rashad Razani, so maybe it was a bad pairing. Oh, he also wrote Comrades. Oh, he did write Comrades. Okay. And Rough Seas. Yeah, exactly. I knew. Uh, yeah, so the Michael Horowitz has now written three of uh, the like six or seven great episodes of television that have been spread across these two seasons of Burn Notice. So yeah, Michael Horowitz, man. Michael Horowitz. He also we... th- he's the guy that wrote on Prison Break. Uh, I, not for that as long. Show he, only that you wrote, like. he, he only wrote three episodes, but it's a fucking good show. This is a great episode of television. It's fun. It's well-paced. It's well-motivated. It's well-performed. It's interesting. It's, like, uh, varied. The stakes are there the entire time. The tension is perfectly paced and ratcheted up. It's just a truly well-done piece of television. It is. I I agree. Do you feel like the fact that they could make this episode means that we need to be harsher on future episodes? I have this thought. I was wondering that. Um, I don't know. I think... Because it does feel like kind of an extreme because it's so good. But also, like, it totally tracks as an episode of Burn Notice. Like, oh, it I does. didn't watch it and think, like, this is a great episode of a different television show. Like, it's absolutely an episode of Burn Notice. It's just the best possible version of it. Agreed. And so as a result... I kind of do think that we need to be harder in future episodes because we know what they're like capable of now. Yeah, and the thing is, at this point, we've seen them do it. Maybe they couldn't have done it up until this point, but now they can do it. Now they have no excuse They've... but to do it. Exactly. Yeah, that, that tracks. Yeah. Well, and Michael Horowitz goes on to write like for pretty much the rest of Burn Notice, I think. Like he he doesn't love us and leave us. He's he's in around. It. Yeah, he's around. He's around until like 2013. Yeah, so, no, I'm looking at his IMDb right now. I know we're both on his IMDb. We have a lot of good stuff coming out from Michael Horowitz. So uh, as long as he's there, I trust that Burn Notice can hit this high again. All right then. Well, all right then. Well, that has been our 
uncharacteristically glowing episode of Burn Come Unnoticed. Uh, but not thing. unexpectedly. Again, we've been hyping this. Yes, we have been hyping it. And I'm just like, honestly, the most heartening part about this recording process has been that you also really enjoyed this episode. Truly a, a gift to us all. Um, so uh, one other thing that's been a gift to us all is our theme music, which was composed by Vincent E.L. And if you want to hear more from him, you can go to vincentel.bandcap.com. And until next week, bye. It's, just, it's really good. 